Welcome back to another episode of the Ecumen. This is lesson 14 now. So we've gone through a bunch of the rest of the lessons here, all covering different parts of the Apostles' Creed. And today we're going to cover the resurrection and life everlasting. Before we get everything kicked off, I'm going to remind you all, please follow us on YouTube. So subscribe and uh, make sure if you can follow us, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, all of your support is appreciated. Share it wherever you want and make sure please to throw us questions so we can get back to you and uh, add more content to future episodes and make it more what you want to hear. So if we get right into it now, we're going to go to question 176. What is meant by the resurrection of the body? By the resurrection of the body, it is meant that at the end of the world, all bodies of men will rise from the earth and be united again to their souls, never more to be separated. What we're looking at here in this question is the fact that Christians are not looking at the soul only and ignoring the physical. When we look at Christ, Christ is God-man combining two natures together, divine and human, body, blood, soul, and divinity. All of that is is Christ. You can't now t take him apart and he would still be Christ. Well, by the same token, you can't take a soul from a human and it's still human. You can't take the body from the human for it still to be a human. There's a bunch of heresies that are brought up by Irenaeus of Lyon. So this is around 188 in Against Heresies. He covers a bunch of the early Gnostic heresies that talked about the body being corrupted and evil and physical things being corrupted and evil. So although original sin damages a lot of things, that does not mean that our flesh is forever corrupted. It means that while we live in sin, we are corrupted. But if we go take on Christ, who has perfect flesh, body, blood, soul, and divinity, and we consume that in union with him in a state of grace, we actually can improve the quality of not only our souls, but our bodies as well. Yes, I believe uh, the more famous of the people with this interesting idea, heresy, is Descartes with the ghost and the machine argument dualism the idea that soul and the body can actually be separated from one one another and what we're looking at here is in the end they're intimately intertwined and this is what some of the other questions will deal with as we go forward i'd also say too that it's interesting we don't condone cremation it does seem to be a, a very pagan thing to want to be cremated in a funeral pyre and it seems to be some sort of diabolic rejection the idea of being buried and, re and wait for the resurrection of the dead. Yeah, we can't really say that anything created by God is bad. And that's the error that Luther has, is that he goes down the road in bondage of the will. I think that's the main one. But he ultimately is ascribing evil to God, which is impossible, because evil is the absence of good, and good is created by God, and God doesn't contradict himself. So when God creates our flesh and our souls, it's because we can be good if we choose to be with him. But if we reject everything that is good, we reject God, there's no good in it. And that's really the, the disconnect. So moving forward to question 177, why will the bodies of the just rise? The bodies of the just will rise to share forever in the glory of their souls. So ultimately, this is the bodies joining, rejoining their souls just as Christ's body rejoins his soul uh, at the resurrection on Easter's the first Easter Sunday, and has now remained joined in heaven. By the same token, we've seen the same thing with Mary. So Mary's body and soul are joined, and it is also said by some of the fathers that potentially even Joseph was reunited with his flesh as well. So that's more uh, debatable, but the other two 
Jesus and Mary both have their bodies and souls with them in heaven, and anyone who goes with them into heaven will have that and rise up. And then we're also going to cover the damned here, starting at 179. But before that, question 178. Has the body of any human person ever been raised from the dead and taken into heaven? And we just started talking about that. By the special privilege of her assumption, the body of the Blessed Virgin Mary, united to her immaculate soul, was glorified and taken into heaven. So, again, Christ's body is in heaven. Mary's body is in heaven. And this goes back to that whole question that I know Protestants have whenever they oftentimes denigrate the Blessed Mother. Everyone says, yeah, she's probably a nice lady, and yeah, I understand that she's the mother of Jesus. And then everything else starts to get debated. But the key takeaway for why this would happen to her, of all people, really is Luke 128, full of grace. Full of something means I cannot have anything else in me or in it, whatever it is, whatever that thing is that's full. If there, if it's full of a, a substance, that means it has no room for anything else. In her case, full of grace, literally full of grace, meaning there's no room for error. There's no room for sin. There's no room for anything that could corrupt Mary's body. And if you look at everything she does that's detailed in the Gospels, she actually never commits any sins and she never doubts anything that Jesus does and only seeks to help the people that are around her. So in the end, you have this immaculate woman doing all these great things. And why should we be surprised then that her body would be united? So her perfect body then basically is united with her soul. Yeah. um, If God was going to submit himself in human form to another human, he uh, particularly one uh, as intimate of a relationship as his own mother, he would do everything in his power to help her to not only she was uh, conceived uh, immaculately, but to remain so throughout her life. Therefore, full of grace. It makes sense. Why would why would God not afford every single ounce, if that's the measurement you want to do, use um, of assistance that he could with uh, his own grace, I suppose. That's what I'm saying. So lacking any divine unit of measurement will go with ounces, I guess. Ounce, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, I don't know really how he's, he's sitting up there like with a, you know, a little measuring cup going, oh, it's a, it's a pinch too much for Jake right now. <laughs> he would ensure to the best of his ability, barring removing her free will, that she would remain in a state of grace her entire life. Ultimately, God wants to make sure that everything is perfect. That's really his goal from the beginning because he is a perfect being. That's what he wants. He doesn't contradict himself. He is perfection. He demands perfection. Well, why would he make anything less than perfect for his mother? Why would he then do anything less than give her the grace necessary so that she could be with him forever? Because God loves his mom. All of us love our moms pretty much. So we'd want to be with them as much time as we could in all seriousness, if we can help them and they can help us. And there's this great relationship that we have. Well, how perfect must it be with God and his mother? And so that's why all of this would all come together and say her flesh is so immaculate that it is worthy of heaven with her and her son. And this whole thing is, it's just beautiful. And it's the other thing too, is that not only is, is Mary his mother, but he knows that he's going to give her to us to be our mother. And so we need someone that, is perfect. Oh yeah, because if you're going to give someone a gift and you're not trying to be a jerk about it, you're not going to give them the dingy, beat up, second rate, 
Look, we'll go with the the Cain treatment because Cain versus Abel. Abel gave the best that he had to God. Cain, on the other hand, said, "Eh, this is my second rate, whatever." How insulting would it be? No small bananas, man. No small bananas. How insulting would it be if God ended up giving us, yeah, just another woman, just whatever. I mean, it's, it's good enough for you. I don't really care. Versus, no, actually, I'm going to give you one of the best gifts that I have ever conceived in my divine mind. And God says, and here is my immaculate mother who will also take care of you like she took care of me. Ponder that for a moment. It was good enough for Jesus to be taken care of her. The least we could sit there and consider is maybe we should be taken care of by our blessed mother as well. Awesome. So either way, we'll come back off the tangent here and we'll get into 179. So a little darker of a topic. Why will the bodies of the damned also rise? The bodies of the damned will also rise to share in the eternal punishment of their souls. So when someone sins, they don't corrupt. And I guess they don't cut themselves off spiritually just spiritually from God. They cut themselves off spiritually and physically from God. And it wasn't just the soul that was involved in the sin. My hands were involved in stealing. My eyes were involved in gawking or creating envy. Uh, We go through all the other seven deadly sins. Our bodies were involved the whole time. So not only will our souls suffer torment, but if we are damned, our bodies will also suffer torment in hell alongside the demons so it's a really heavy topic it is indeed it's also one of the other things too you hear certain individuals discuss what hell would be like and well it's just separation from god and there's a lot of people who were like well i don't do anything with god anyways that's that doesn't sound too bad to me um which ultimately is interesting we've talked about before i believe on this podcast the idea of what would it be like if someone chose not, did not want to be with God, what would heaven be like for them? It would be hell, to be in worship of God all, for all eternity. But more to the point, too, we are simple creatures, and we understand simple direct consequences, and having bodily physical torment for all eternity is easier for us to grasp, I think, as well, than just mental anguish. Although... It can be very much argued in today's modern society that we suffer more from mental anguish than physical. When you look at how comfortable everyone's living is and central air and central heating and food and um, the fact that there's very few starving people in the Western world and yet the suicide rates are still up, manic depression is still up more than any time in history. Um, yeah, strangely enough, people aren't fulfilled by technology yeah. and all manner of uh, distractions. But I mean, I got, you know, Jesus also talks about it in the gospel as well, too. It'd be better for you to cut off if your right hand caused you to sin. It would be better for you to cut it off and cast it into the fire. I don't think he said that lightly, right? He, he did not say that in just kind of like, well, you know, just cast it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I wasn't being serious. Whoa, dude. Like, <laughs> you know, but he, I mean, he was being extremely candid about that because of the fact that your, your body, and it goes back to the fact your body and your soul are linked. You cannot separate them. It's not like your body can go one way and your soul goes the other. Which means then when we're talking about cleansing, our cleansing has to be as the complete man, body and soul. So we're actually Mortification? What? That's, whoa. So yeah, so we'll actually, I think, talk about that in a future lesson. But I know Paul brings it up. So the whole thing is that the only way to actually be cleansed, so not to go to hell, to go to heaven, 
You're having faith in Jesus Christ. You're doing the works that he wants done. So really you're doing his work and he's working through you. And then the only way you can make sure that's done to the best of your ability, to the best of what God wants from you, is mortification is part of that, which means we start cutting off all the things of this world, all the things of the old man, all the distractions, all the different piece parts that actually come and take from us everything that was good. Because we're basically just saying, eh, I don't want to be with God because it's hard or whatever. This is the whole reason why we have Advent and that preparation is that to do the purification of ourselves with God's help, obviously. He's the one doing the cleaning. This is why confession. This is why the Eucharist. Um, this is why prayers, uh, fasting, etc. This is why we do all that prep. So we're worthy by the time Christ would show up on Christmas. And by the same token, Lent, the big one, that's the one that we're all going through right now. And my, has it been an amazing Lent. This is the opportunity to sit there and accept all those pains that come to us. It may not be Lent for those of you listening right now, but for right now, it's, it's true. It's Lent for us. While we're recording it, it's Lent still, getting ready for Passion Week. But consider the thing is, is that all of those penances, wherever we take suffering and pain, this is our cross. This is our opportunity to decide whether or not we want to be in hell and suffer like this forever, or whether we take our licks here. And we try to get better so we're made worthy. So by the time that judgment comes, working right into question 180, that we're ready to be judged worthy of heaven. So this is the this is the consideration. We can only yep. go one of two ways. That we have to end up in hell or we have to end up in heaven. And and I think too, also the understanding that we will the bodies will rise from the dead and they will rejoin the soul one way or the other. Um, I think also too puts in a very interesting perspective when we interact with the world out there. Because there are very few things, if any, that are just neutral, right? They're either a little good, they're a little bad, they're scales, they cross over into mortally sinful, if abused. Um, but it allows us to see that certain activities, physical things that we do can affect us. But also in the fact, too, that like the world and the way we interact is also under influence of supernatural and preternatural spirits and the the linking of the two right technology technology addiction alcohol addiction things like that those are not things that exist in a vacuum of themselves there are spirits that are pushing us one way or the other um calling us away from or calling us to those those things and i think again it's it's all very it's all very linked you can't separate one from the other it's all truth there is no fraction the only thing I'd add is that I think actions are either good or bad. Um, therefore, then people end up in a good or bad place. Um, by kind of this contrast, though, things oftentimes, um, like, say, the Internet or guns or cars or books, are neutral. There's actually no real good or bad in them. It's just a thing. It's but really it's just how a you thing. But I think the I think. The technology of, let's say, an automobile is inherently good. Connecting more people, ease of transportation, frees up time. You know, the idea of running water. Those are good. Those are good inventions. Well, they're good opportunities. Yeah. The thing is, is really we're looking for how does it glorify God? So when we look at things like again the internet or or guns, they actually have useful purposes. If we're talking, say, guns for yes, recreation or tools defense. and tools are good. Tools can be misused, but yes. tools are good. That's what I'm saying. They that have there the is potential. No, there is good. very few things 
in this world, I would say that are that are absolutely completely neutral. Well, and, and what I would argue is I think they have the potential for good in that they can start causing distractions, which ultimately detract from our ability to spend time with God. Sure, but in the, as you say, as we talked about earlier, right? You know, um, God doesn't create things that aren't good, right? Man can create bad things. Man can create good things. We can we can look and right away there's technology out there that we can go. That's just not good. That or was, statues to idols, to demons and stuff correct. like that. Also Immediately evil. you look at yeah. it and go, that has a negative impact on the world. That is not good. There is no useful purpose for that tool. You can look at anything else, running water, cars, computers, cell phones. You can look at that and go, those have useful, they have a box that they fit in. So as long as you're not using them outside of that or outside that scope, they're as a tool, they are useful, they are good, they are purposeful. Um, it's when we blur the lines between, you know, you know, there's nothing wrong with a pipe every now and then, nothing wrong with, uh, you know, a beer. But as we've seen in our own lives, those can both be misused. Yeah. And so today, too, we didn't really uh, bring it up before, but this is uh, Pete and Jake here in studio. So still missing Brian. One of these days, he'll be back with us. In case some of you all were just waiting for him to spring into action. <laughs> we are, too. At some point, it'll happen. It'll be great. No, but uh, we are giving a shout out. Uh, he's out there doing good things in the world. So uh, he's just busy. So, moving on to question 180, what is the judgment called which will be passed upon all men immediately after the general resurrection? The judgment which will be passed on all men immediately after the general resurrection is called the general judgment. So, this is when, after our particular judgments, which I think we're going to hit here down in question 183, this is when God takes us all in front of each other and then starts to tell everybody everything that we did wrong that was unconfessed, unresolved, and basically then render sentences to everyone in turn. It's going to be a pretty uh, awe-inspiring event. This is when he separates the sheep from the, from the goats. So the sheep, he moves to his right. The goats, he moves to his left. Very reminiscent of what happened when he was on the cross with Dismas, St. Dismas on the right. And Gesmus, the angry, unrepentant sinner on the left. Without an eye. <laughs> he was without an eye after the crow got it. Oh, that's true. The what? angry, that's eyeless right. sinner. <laughs> Cyclops. He's now a Cyclops. <laughs> so, um, yes, general judgment is going to be a pretty big moment. And I, let's move on to the next questions here because the next questions actually give more detail on the general judgment. So question 181, what is the judgment called which will be passed on each one of us immediately after death? The judgment which will be passed upon each one of us immediately after death is called the particular judgment. So you're going to know after you pass through this life into the next, you're going to meet with Christ right out of the gate. And he's basically going to tell you whether or not you decided to go with him or not. And he will deem you worthy or not of heaven based on all of your will, all of your feelings, all of your actions, all rolled up together in union with him. So this is not supposed to be a surprise. In all fairness, I mean, don't get me wrong, we don't know. We're hoping we're going to make it to heaven. There's always the chance that we don't. But he's not going to go and leave you hanging. And it's not going to be, when he goes and evaluates all of it, it's not going to be a surprise from the standpoint of, the way that it's always set up is Jesus with the apostles in judgment in front of you. 
uh, you are sitting at the defendant's bench and your guardian angel is with you. And then on the other side is the prosecutor, Satan, who's actually going through every single offense that you have ever made in every way you offended God. And the only other person who can come to your legal team for assistance is the Blessed Mother. This is where Mary comes in as well. But that moment, your personal moment, that's the particular judgment. And then the general judgment is when everyone's brought together for the grand sentencing and separation. And that's the whole thing, too, is, you know, we talked about how all your sins will be illuminated before the rest of humanity, except those that are confessed. So um, when your sins are washed away in confession, they cannot be used against you, both at your particular judgment by the accuser and in the general judgment before everyone else. Uh, only those who believe what they do in the dark will not be brought into the light. Only those sins will be foretold or not foretold. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, shown. Sure. There we go. Shown. Do you know where that's written at? Yeah, that was a father wolf talk though, where he was uh, discussing the idea that the, the just sins are not brought before anyone else. And I believe it was a Father Wolf talking a different one where he was talking about the idea that all confessed sins can't be used against you by the accuser. I will definitely give a plug here, though, to Father Isaac Mary Relia. His talks on the four last things are very moving. You can find those also on YouTube. Um, they're about an hour long a piece, so it's about four hours because it covers death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And I know that we will cover them actually in the catechism as well, which is why they're one of the, the key topics. But really pay attention there. I'm also going to add two clarifying points here is that one, the only way you get resolved of sins out of a state of sin into a state of grace is to confess your sins. The sacrament of penance, the sacrament of confession, it cannot be done unless you communicate your sins publicly. It has to go to another person as well as to Christ for it to be valid, just as the scripture states. And I know we've referenced it multiple times. It, and I want to say even the last video, I think, is where we, we talked about it a lot. But you have to publicly confess sins. This is what Scripture says. So if we are going to profess that we actually are Christians and we believe what the Scriptures tell us, then we probably should be confessing our sins in public. Now, I am really thankful that St. Patrick allows us, you know, like he enabled us, I should say, to get the sacrament put behind closed doors. So I only have to talk to a priest. I would prefer that to saying all of my sins to the entire parish or to just, you know, scream them on a loudspeaker. So that's good. So it's not terrible, but we need to actually do the sacrament of confession if we want to be formally cleansed of our sins. Um, and then the second point here works. All right. No good work comes from man alone. Every Catholic should admit to that because it is what our scripture says. It is what our tradition says. Ultimately, it is what our catechism teaches because that is what the scripture and tradition have always said. However, our works can be good when they're Christ's works and he wills us to be his medium to bring his good to the world. We are going to be judged on how many of those works, whether or not we got them done for him or not. If we shirk it and we decide, yeah, I don't feel like it. It's so hard. People make fun of me and people sit there and get angry at me when I tell them that, well, you got to do what God wants you to do. Well, we should probably not go and sin right here. Well, we should probably be kinder to those people. Well, I don't think we should steal that. I'll go through all the things that people are going to 
consider and say and feel and we can't be grudging in our work so we if we want to go and destroy good works be angry about it and be resentful to god when you do it because he knows what's in our hearts so he's reading that as well our works are going to be judged so look in here the verse that they actually put in the catechism for it is easy before god in the day of death to reward everyone according to his ways those are works this is the same thing that jesus says in matthew it's the same thing that john says in the book of revelation so overall we need to consider the fact that works are considered in our equation to balance or judge or determine whether or not we are worthy for heaven so question 182 if everyone is judged immediately after death why will there be a general judgment answer Although everyone is judged immediately after death, it is fitting that there be a general judgment in order that the justice, wisdom, and mercy of God may be glorified in the presence of all. This goes back to that public aspect of everything. Guys, we're in a community. We are a part of the body of Christ. This is our actions. Again, I think we've talked about this as well, are not done in a vacuum. Our sins hurt other people. Our sins hurt ourselves, our sins offend God, and vice versa. Our good works are done in a way that ultimately benefit many people. That grace continues to flow. We don't want to cut people off from grace by us deciding to sin and then breaking that chain. We want to keep it open. As long as that conduit is open, grace flows freely to a lot of different people. Well, that interdependency of all those individuals, this is why ultimately it makes sense that everyone is going to see everyone and know the good and bad of everyone because god's going to sit there and say all right and now that the veil's all off and now you're looking at me and i'm looking at you and all the angels are here and all the saints and all the demons everyone should be present knowing what's about to happen and then all of the sentences are rendered so well, i think it's also true too that in the in an act of the most um in the most unjust act in all of mankind, Jesus was judged publicly and condemned wrongfully. So I think it only serves us best that in the act of the perfect justice that we all be judged publicly and either uh, justified or damned. Almost like Christ is sharing his road to Calvary with us and sharing Calvary with us in the same vein and showing us that he went through it unjustly, and now he's going to fix everything that was broken, starting with Adam and Eve, all the way up until the end of time, and it will be done publicly. Yeah, and I think I think I was listening to a uh, a church militant uh, vortex actually not too long ago when they were discussing that, um, and I'd have to look up who it was they were citing, but the idea that uh, Caiaphas will be the first one judged in front of everyone. That is a heavy sentence or a heavy thought in terms of what Caiaphas did. Caiaphas was the last... I think that was in the four last things, wasn't it? Wouldn't surprise I me. I think it's four last things they talk about the general judgment and Caiaphas is the first called up. So for any of you catechumen out there or new Catholics or non-Catholics who aren't familiar with Caiaphas, he was the leader of the church, so the Sanhedrin. He was the, the high priest uh, in place, so basically the last of the mosaic priests that would actually sit on that seat the last of that seat of moses who would unjustly condemn jesus but surprisingly enough to close out the mosaic priest line would offer the final lamb to god the father in jesus christ 
What's interesting is Caiaphas ultimately becomes the head of the false church by doing what he did. The issue is that he begrudgingly, under false pretenses, sacrifices the Lamb of Correct. God yeah. and then rends his garments and making a show of it. And what ultimately transpires is this is exactly where, as the Christian church is being founded, the Mosaic church is becoming history. And then that's where this break occurs, where the Pharisees who are trying to follow in the footsteps of Caiaphas um, and are leaving the camp of Christ have to create a new religion. And this is where Judaism, the religion, is created because in the end, guess what? Uh, The Pharisees would create rabbinical Judaism, and rabbinical Judaism has no sacrifice. It has no temple. It doesn't even have all the scriptures. They're missing books because they don't have the Septuagint that was actually used by the Mosaic faith. And so this breakdown uh, is where we get a lot of, this is where Zionism comes from and a bunch of those other issues that we see between Catholics and Protestants where they try to hold up this Israel thing and say, well, this is Israel, even though Paul says Israel is the church, it's the Catholic church. And Mm -hmm. that the Jews of today have a whole bunch of problems where they are not Jews of old. They are not Mosaic Jews because they don't have any priests. The Mosaic Jews in 44 AD, excuse me, what was left of them, the Levites, were ultimately killed by the Pharisees who basically collaborated with the Romans to have them executed around 44 AD. This is when the Sadducees and Essenes, so that which are a kind of a monastic sect of Sadducees, all get killed. And that's at the same time when the Essenes knew that the Romans were coming. That's why they basically put all of their scriptures into jars and then hid them out near the Dead Sea in those Dead Sea Scrolls. That's where they came from around 44 AD. That right there is the ending of the Levitical priesthood, which means there are no valid priests anymore to offer a Mosaic sacrifice to God. Therefore, that was how God ended it and said, all right, Mosaic done, the seed of Moses done. We've now moved on to the seed of Peter. This is the fulfilled new covenant church of Christ. Question 183. What are the rewards or punishments appointed for men after the particular judgment? The rewards or punishments appointed for men after the particular judgment are either heaven purgatory or hell so heaven and hell by and large most christians agree there is a place with god that will be forever people agree on hell though anymore there is a yeah there's a hell, hell but nobody's there yeah we're all that we're all in heaven so looking down catholic theology specifies there is a physical location that is hell we don't know specifically where this location is. It has been surmised that it is actually in the center of the earth. The otherwise, though, I think Jesus even says it's in the center of the yeah. earth. All we know is there is a physical place that is hell, and it lasts for eternity, and there's only one way in and no way out. Heaven is for eternity. There are debates, though, between Protestants and Catholics as to where this is, because when we look at what the fathers and doctors say about heaven, we see that heaven is probably earth when it comes down out of the heaven where God the Father is today with Jesus, with Mary. At the very end, they purify the surface of the earth where ultimately men will dwell forever in eternity, meaning heaven actually becomes the surface of the earth. So I will look and see if I can go and make sure that we include the links to that. Um, But those things pretty much in agreement on, um, with the exception of then, For some reason, theology has become twisted to a point now, especially Christian theology, and I'll put that in quotes, 
to the point where we now, like Jake said, are having debates as to whether or not hell exists. Debates as to whether or not hell is really that bad. People are trying to go and sit there and bring up origin um, of Alexandria. So this is a he's around the 200s, early third century. Um, it is said that he actually had a heresy and that he tried to argue that the damned will come out and get out of there at some point and they'll basically be redeemed and they'll be able to be corrected. That heresy was condemned over and over and saying, no, 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 infinite God gets infinite offense, ultimately then offers a infinite mercy and anyone who rejects infinite mercy for an infinitely offended God ultimately will receive an infinite punishment. Thereby, hell is eternal, period, done. So if someone says, I don't want God, that's where they should expect to go forever. So yeah, demons, it's also, too, you don't just go like, oh, man, I've been in hell now for a little bit, and this isn't fun. I, I changed my mind. No it changing is, course. Yeah, there's no changing course. So when you die, you kind of, your will, your your the state of your soul is set in stone, as it were, for eternity. It's the same way it's like, well, doesn't the devil know he was wrong? Can he just come back? And it's like, he knows he, he was wrong, but his pride. He knows he was wrong, but his pride, yeah. It's like they, the angels are much different than us, right? So they don't have, they know so much more so that when they make a decision, they can foresee, unlike humans, where we can't really see second, third, fourth order effects. So he made that decision knowing the consequences of it, made it anyways. And it's kind of the same with us. When we die in that state of grace, everything's illuminated to us. We see the state of our soul. We go to hell. Now we may hate the punishment, but we don't, that doesn't mean anything about whether we would choose to actually worship God for all eternity. It is ultimately how is reserved for those individuals who decide that they wish to be separated from God and God out of justice and almost a mercy says, I'll give it to you because that's what you wanted. So I think if we take him seriously, then hell makes complete sense as to why it would be eternal and why it would be terrible uh, from the standpoint of like, well, if people don't want God, then they don't get him. It's that simple. And he'll oblige. So moving into purgatory, though, purgatory is the one now where there will be arguments with Protestants who say there is no purgatory. And there's going to be arguments with Eastern Orthodox who have left the truth, um, left the church in part. So they have the, the deposit of the faith. They have kind of cut themselves off in part from it. They still have sacraments. They still have priests. They still have bishops. All of them validly ordained and all of them validly executed. At least to my knowledge, there may be another term that needs to be in there from the legality standpoint uh, in that I know Catholics are not supposed to attend Eastern Orthodox liturgies because of that separation there that we can't guarantee what they're going to say. So Eastern Orthodox have issues in their theology when it comes to they kind of take a Pelagian view on original sin. They don't believe that original sin, the guilt of that ultimately comes on to us and the punishments of such actually are felt by us and now need to be remedied by us. They have issues with divorce and remarriage. They think you can be remarried twice, even though Christ multiple times says you cannot be remarried ever when your spouse still lives. That is adultery. Um, and then they have issues with contraception, which they now support. So the Catholic Church is the only Christian body which doesn't promote it. And then lastly, on the Blessed Mother is where there are other discrepancies, because if they take the Pelagian view of original sin, then there's no need to have an immaculate conception because, well, no one actually shares any guilt. So everyone's perfect and everyone's fine. So those things cause breaks. Well, when we look at those breaks, it also goes into purgatory. Purgatory is needed because John the apostle in the you book of Revelation. Question 184 real quick. 
we're about to do that anyways. So yeah, actually let's let's do question one eighty four then, and then we'll finish out with what I was talking about with uh, Revelation. So we'll go with question one eighty four: Who is punished in purgatory? Those people punished for a time in purgatory are those who die in a state of grace but are guilty of venial sin or have not fully satisfied the temporal punishment due for their sins. So, all right, we're going to sit there and we're going to have people, why purgatory? That doesn't make any sense. Where's purgatory in Scripture? The thing is, is this goes back to things that Martin Luther broke. If Martin Luther hadn't touched the Scriptures, the book of Maccabees would still be there. And then when you talk, you see the old Hebrews talking about praying for the dead and you see Christ talking about paying back to the last penny in this life or the next and realize there's nothing that you're going to make up the difference on in hell it's there permanently there's no need to atone for anything in heaven which means that little statement that Christ makes in the gospel of Matthew has to be about another place people in the same vein Paul talks in Corinthians about being tried in fire when we start putting all these things together and realize that there still is atonement that needs to be done in the same way that, yeah, sure, David was forgiven for sinning with Bathsheba, but ultimately their first child died as a punishment for a forgiven sin. This is the whole economy of grace here and the economy of God. If you sin, you will have to atone. God's not thrilled about the fact that you sinned. You will suffer for it. All the different things that are out there, we should not be surprised that God would punish us for those sins. What? So oh. you're talking multiple plagues in the world and multiple events have happened throughout history when people turn away from God. It's not a surprise. By that same token, then, how do you get perfect so that you should be allowed through the gates of heaven? So Revelation 21, 27, John the evangelist writes that nothing defiled will get through the gates of heaven. All right. So now there has to be a way where people are made perfect. Because if you didn't atone in this life, you have not cleaned your baptismal garments. You're not in a state where your body and soul are pure enough to walk through those gates and not soil heaven. There is not one speck of dirt, one thing out of place, one smudge, anything imperfect in heaven. Which means if we go through, the only way we go through is perfect. And every single one of those people, every single one of you people who's listening today, Jake and myself know we have our own flaws and all of our problems as well. All of you know what your flaws are. You all know when you get angry about stuff that you shouldn't get angry about. You all know when you have a bad feeling because you want to just, oh, that guy just annoys you. Or, oh, why is she asking me to do this again? Or just keep going through all the problems that we have. Every single one of those non-Christian feelings that we get when we sin, all of that has to be cleaned up. And I get it. Everything that Christ did on the cross can clean it. However, accepting that grace, accepting that redemption is an act of the will, is committing of the intellect to learning what needs to be done so that we can align our will and our actions with God so that everything we do is in reparations and purification and cleaning. So every single time I would have sinned, I have actually done penance and atoned for those wrongs. If I didn't do that in this life, there's only one more place I can get it if I'm going to die in a state of grace and go to heaven purgatory and purgatory is basically where you get cleaned so that's my clean room so there is a vacuum seal there you go to purgatory get all cleaned up and all the waste is cut off and you go through into you go into heaven cleanly i think it's pretty evident people don't want to admit it but i think it's pretty evident that purgatory is needed it makes sense logically if i have a very messy room uh i can be disgusted 
with the filth or whatever it is that I'm living in. And I can go, this is bad. I can admit it. I can be like, I don't want this to be my living condition. That's awesome. Admitting you have a problem is the first step, right? Um, but then you still have to do things to clean it up, right? Which may take time. It may take effort. It may be painful. It may be disgusting, you know, getting behind the where the food's falling in the couch, wherever it is, right? You have to, you have to clean. Um, there's something else I was going to say about this, but essentially the idea of purgatory is when you were talking about repay uh, to the last penny, it's the idea that yes, um, oftentimes Protestants say, well, I don't need to do that. God's forgiven me. And it's like you, forgiveness and atonement are two different things, right? And so the idea is, oh, I know what I was going to say, and uh, you will pay, repay to the, uh, the last penny in this life or the next. So you can be forgiven 100%. You can have uh, sanctifying grace. You will get to heaven eventually, right? You're in a state of grace. You know, you still got to give the butcher his due type thing. Um, and the idea is you do penance. That's why we talked about earlier. You do mortification, right? You deny your body the pleasures, the comforts of this life in order to reap the comforts of the next life, right? You put yourself through suffering, whether that is physical, whether that is even, um, I don't really necessarily know how you put yourself through emotional suffering, but maybe you could if you're meditating you on the on the passions of, of yes. Jesus Christ, right? If if you are the seven sitting sorrows, there, correct. If you are if you are praying while meditating on the seven sorrows of Mary, if you are meditating on the Jesus passion, um, putting yourself there with our Savior, with our Blessed Mother, trying to imagine what that that whole experience was like. If you are put it on sackcloth and ashes, which is very uncommon these days, but maybe just a black fast, not eating all day. If you're putting your body through those um, body and soul through those painful uh, acts, then hopefully enough of that will cleanse you to where you don't have to go to purgatory. But again, it goes back to the whole room analogy, right? Um, if you let your, if you're one of those hoarders you see on like the A and E episodes, I don't know if you ever saw that show. Like, have you ever, have you ever seen hoarders? Like, it's terrible. It's like my uh, kids' it, bedrooms. Honestly, it's how they treat it. It's so bad, but it's so bad. But like, that will take a long time. Multiple people, right? Which unfortunately, you only get you. You're there's no help in cleaning your baptismal garment, right? It's only you. You can't call over well, some friends for some pizza. We can we can call in the saints, and ultimately we're getting Christ's grace, but it's only by our will alone. Like he, Just like Jake's saying, no one else can come join you in your will. you got to commit yourself to it. This is not about getting someone else to jump on and support you and drive you to doing it, because in the end, it's now an equation the between you and God. Prayer, absolutely. You can, you can call in some assistance as far as the physical... Um, Mortification. Mortification. Only you get to do that. Like, that's left for you. And so if you look at that show and you see some of these people whose whole houses are packed from floor to ceiling, which is just nasty, terrible stuff, that's going to take a long time for a person who's already of, of weak uh, moral fiber or have some sort of weird tick or whatever you want to call somebody who hoards, but somebody who is not balanced, we'll say that, that is not, is not prudent in their judgments on what they, they keep and throw away. 
doesn't going to take that person a very long time. Um, likewise, if they do finally get it cleaned up, how much easier is it to do, um, once it's all clean, to keep something clean, right? One piece of trash on the ground, pick it up, throw it away, as opposed to 10,000 pieces of trash in your house. Um, and so it's the idea of like you constantly doing this. And even if you're sitting there, which we never as good Christians would sit there and go, you know what? I've done enough penance. I'm going to call it today. I think I'm good. I think I'm clean. Do mortification for the souls of those you love. Yeah, we can actually make up the difference. We can in, suffer for other people. To re- we can suffer in order for the reparations of, uh, uh, of the offenses against God. We can take on that suffering. And this is what Paul talks about in terms of taking on, basically, for the things that Christ lacked. He's not saying that Christ didn't do enough grace in his, you know, have enough grace and generate enough merit in his own sacrifice. Christ did. The issue is, is that after we go and accept everything that Christ did, and then we decide to sin afterwards, we've now rejected and created a new, we've, we've unbalanced the equation. So we have to rebalance the equation with atonement and penance. The other thing I was going to add too, is that in the Greek, it is important here to note, and this is one thing that, again, Protestants are not going to pay attention to because they haven't actually known about it. And they're trying to justify something that isn't true in denying purgatory. But Christ uses two words when he talks about hell. And so when he talks about hell, hell, so where no one ever gets out and the demons are and it's terrible and uh, you're talking people with eternal punishments, that he uses the word Gehenna. Gehenna is the valley where the pagan, I believe, Baal worshippers would throw babies and other stuff into a fire while a band played so that after they gave the babies to the fire, that they hoped that Baal would give them prosperity as a result. And I want to say Chamosh and Molech are two others. That It's the same style of worship with the same thing. Um, that Valley of Gehenna is where that terrible, terrible thing happened. Well, by contrast, he uses the word Hades when he's talking about purgatory. There's not the same, there's not permanence in it. Hades is a lighter term. It is not as abhorrent and is just just. Well, the only gross. difference is, is that it's essentially the same hellfires. Um, the only difference is there's hope and people are there willingly. So there's some sort of relief. But if you're thinking that purgatory is just going to be a walking on hot coals type of deal, um, that's, that's negative. I'm going to use that comment that we used one of the last episodes is that purgatory and hell are in the same heating system. Mm-hmm. So uh, purgatory sucks too. Our goal is to avoid it, get to heaven. And so we'll, we'll round out the next two questions here with uh, heaven, hell, heaven, and purgatory here. But question 185, who's punished in hell? Those who are punished in hell are those who die in a state of mortal sin. They are deprived of the vision of God and suffer dreadful torments, especially that of fire for all eternity. The children at Fatima saw this. They, they went there. John Bosco went there. There's a handful of other mystics who've been there. It is terrible, terrible, terrible. The people who um, were out of control, so what was it? People who were in control, sorry, slothful, are thrown about and they can't control it. The people who did too much, they wouldn't stop. They were just being uh, selfish and busybody and not from the standpoint of glorifying God, but for themselves to calm this or do that, but all for the world and all doing all manner of other evil things. They are ultimately bound without the ability to move for eternity. You're talking demons getting in those people's heads. So you're talking nightmarish torments forever that they can never sleep from. 
um, their bodies are beaten, bruised, torn, uh, without ever breaking. So they'll suffer all the pain, but the body, because it's a perfect risen body, like we talked about up earlier in the lesson, um, the body never goes away. So for eternity, these people have to deal with all that. And you're talking about a place there, there where there is no quiet. There's no silence in hell. All it is is the shrieks and screams of the damned. And you're talking people blaspheming, and it's never, ever, ever quiet. And it's one of the things that's concerning about the current world the way it's all moved forward is there's always music playing. There's always something going on. There's always something in the background. We never there's do always silence. a smartphone. Yep. There's n- we never really have any sort of meditative reflectiveness. Even even people that are like, well, I don't. I, I turn off the TV. I put my f- smartphone and go. Uh, even those people are you know board games reading. Um, and there's nothing wrong with reading or board games at all. It is the point that we never take a break and the whole saying of there's no rest for the wicked there's a lot of truth in that statement that people don't really necessarily realize yep so that's that's what waits ahead for all those individuals who don't want to be with god who don't want to do the will of god who don't want to give everything to god and ultimately that's that's the the end state for them so it's it's sad from the standpoint of all the opportunity exists for many people in this world to rectify that and end up in heaven but unfortunately, they will choose the low road and walk away from God, and that is the outcome. So again, if one offends an infinite God who has to be offended infinitely, and that infinite God then comes down and takes on flesh to offer infinite mercy, our best plan is to take that infinite mercy, receive that infinite mercy, and return it with works, with faith, with love, charity, so that we can be made worthy of his promises and go to heaven. Um, if we decide not to do that, well, hell is the only place. An infinite punishment, infinite justice remains for an infinite God, infinitely offended and infinitely rejected by those people who end up there. So moving on to a lighter topic, question 186, who are the rewarded in heaven? So who are, which individuals are rewarded in heaven? Those who are rewarded in heaven are those who have died in a state of grace and have been purified in purgatory, if necessary, from all venial sin and all debt of temporal punishment they see God face to face and share forever his glory and happiness. So these individuals have been cleansed of all of the damage, all of the, the stains, all of the imperfections and corruptions that sin, that their sins have caused. So you're talking these people have pure baptismal garments. These people will not stay in heaven when they walk in. Uh, when God the Father sees them as they come toward the gate, he sees Jesus. Because what did they do? Everything that Jesus wanted done, they did it. Everything that Jesus allowed or let befall them in terms of how many evil consequences, because God does not will evil. God will permit evil. And all the evil that God permits to befall us, these people lovingly took on that cross and said, thank you, God, for giving this to me. This is for you. This is how I get closer and intimate. And they willingly accepted it with love so that they could glorify him and give grace to people despite the fact that they were in pain. These are the people who are now going to heaven. It's beautiful. It's I mean, it's kind of, once you kind of go over, I just kind of feel like, you know, I wouldn't, you get into weird territory with saying like who gets to go to heaven, right? Because people automatically project onto you, oh, he's condemning someone or he's justifying someone and that's not what we're doing. We're just going off what the church teaches. If you avoid, if you die in a state of grace, if you avoid offending God into eternity, if you not only die in a state of grace, 
but do not bear the marks of other dirt, right, in the forms of venial sins on your baptismal garment. If both of those things, if you can throw those out, then you are pure and you are welcomed into heaven. And yeah, I mean, what a what an amazing feeling that would be, I suppose. Like, uh, there's no earthly pleasure that could describe, you know, standing before God with the accuser having nothing to say and the Blessed Mother as your advocate and your guardian angel and God going, you made it. And eyes have not seen and ears have not heard what awaits. So that's Paul's words. And I think the only thing that we would leave these two last questions with, and not the last, there's one more, but it's way simpler than these. More people are going to hell than to heaven. Wide is the path that leads to destruction and narrow is the gate. And that gate only allows the perfect people in. So if an individual does not want to be on the perfect road, on the road of slavery to God, as Paul says, and as Peter says, if we're not willing to do that, we're not willing to sit forever in worship of God for eternity, then it's hard to look forward and be happy about what's coming. Life in general has meaning with God, and that's really what we're trying to figure out here. What's the best way to, to get through life with God and make it to, to heaven? But unfortunately, the majority of souls will go to hell because they don't want God. Now, and I want to make sure to, to emphasize here, Jake and I do not believe that we are dead set bound for heaven. That absolutely not. No, I definitely don't. So we're saying this as we are in the same boat of hoping for salvation, working out our salvation with fear and trembling because God will get his way no matter what. So our goal is to unite ourselves with him entirely so we have the best hope of being saved. So we can be saved from the camp of Satan through baptism, and we can be saved from hell through living a good life with faith and works and charity so that we can be with God, share his divinity, and do everything right. So so that's kind of wh- where we're going. Um, we'll hit the last little question here. What is meant by the word amen, which we, with which we end the Apostles' Creed? By the word amen at the end of the Apostles' Creed, it is meant so it is, or so be it. The word expresses our firm belief in all doctrines that the creed contains. We're basically affirming what we have said. So when we go through the Apostles' Creed, or any prayer for that matter, the reason we say amen at the end is because we say, yes, so be it. Yea, verily. Full truth. Full commitment behind it. I'm not going to be like, ah, maybe, sort of. No, I'm in. If I said it, I mean it. If God said it, he means it. You're not ending in a question, as it were, you know? (laughs) I believe this. <laughs> um, you know, you're not ending in question. And it goes back. We've talked about it in other episodes, but the idea that it is godly words have meaning, right? Only there's only one entity in this world who father of lies, the accuser that tries to twist words in its meaning. And so a reaffirmation at the end of the apostles creed with amen or any of our prayers um, is a statement uh, like the the final seal of approval. Yes, this is what I believe. Um, and anyone who says, ah, well, you don't need to say amen at the end of it. Like, just be very wary of of anyone, right? Because as soon as you negate the power of words that they hold, both in prayer, both in consecration, if you negate those words, uh, or try to, if you think you are, I would argue you've gone down, you've started down the wrong path. And that's the same place that 
all of the heretics have gone, all of the apostates have gone, is it was playing with words to get new meanings that God never intended. So these words are logical, right? They are, they are, they are not emotion based. There is what we talked about earlier. They are tools to convey what you think, how you feel, and to say that they don't have power uh, is not correct. I would find it. I do find it interesting that certain people of different political persuasions, you know, talk about hate speech or you know, safe places from words. Um, it's almost like they have a perverted idea, right? And the idea that they have, they understand, or they would argue, I don't know if they understand actually, but they argue that words have power and words can hurt people. And that initial, uh, that initial thought is true. However, where they lose it is the, the temperance, right? That words do not equate to other actions such as physical um, acts. So there, there is a spectrum. However, words still have power, and anyone who would say that it's just words and they don't mean anything, or it's just a joke, or you're taking it too seriously, or you're reading too much into it, I would say that is not a beneficial thought process, a thought experiment. All right, and on that note, that closes out Lesson 14. Thank you all for listening. If you have any questions, like I said, throw them into the SoundCloud box or throw them into uh, YouTube. We'll answer uh, them as they come in. Please subscribe to us on YouTube, follow on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, share the videos. This is how we're getting out. It's the only way that uh, other people find out that we're here to help educate wherever other educations have fallen short. We're happy to go and fill in some of that gap and uh, get you guys closer to that Catholic road and closer to God, all things considered. So thank you again for listening. It's been a pleasure, and we will uh, see you next time. And as always, St. Joseph, pray for us. us.